you know, all we talked about for two and a half months was breasts. All I thought about was breasts. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking in the mirror too and being like, I'm more, I'm so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Look at me. Like I'm upright. I'm doing what I need to do. You know, in this moment, I'm more than this. And so that was huge too, because, you know, as a woman, you, I always compared myself. I always compared my breasts to other people and always was proud of them, as you said. And I was, you know, like <laughs> better breasts than my sisters. Welcome to Compare to Who, the podcast to help you stop comparing and start living. I'm your host, Heather Creekmore. I hate to admit this, but I used to secretly obsess over my appearance. I thought it was part of my job as a woman to always look better, but never felt like I could be good enough. Maybe you can relate. God, in His grace, showed me a way out, and I want to give you all the tools you need to break free too. If you've ever spent too much time stressing over your looks, I get it. I hope you'll keep listening and find the same freedom I have. Here are three other things you should know about me. I'm a minivan driving mom of four. I'm author of the book Compared to Who and the forthcoming book The Burden of Better. I'm a blogger at comparedtowho.me and you just may have seen my epic big fail on Netflix. If you've ever struggled with comparison or body image issues, Compared to Who is the show for you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hey, tell a friend about it. Hey there, welcome to the Compared to Who podcast and video cast. I'm Heather Creekmore, and I'm glad you're watching today because I'm going to go out on a limb and say that today may be the most important show of the whole season four. And beyond that, it may be the most interesting show of season four because my guest today was my best friend in high school. Yes, that's right. My best friend in high school. Now, for some of you, that might be normal, like your best friend in high school like lives down the street from you, but I am 40-something, and um, I haven't seen Rachel, my guest today, in, we were probably been 20 years, I think we figured, and maybe longer, and we have this our first time to speak since we saw each other last. And why would this be an interesting show for you? I know that you're wondering that. Well, Rachel and I are going to talk about a topic that keeps coming up for me with friends who have walked through cancer. Now, specifically, we're going to talk about breast cancer today, but I think this applies to a lot of a lot of different types of cancer for a lot of women who have gone through the struggles of your body changing during cancer because of cancer. And so Rachel has agreed to tackle this very difficult topic with me today. Let me tell you just a little bit about her. Her her husband's a pastor. They live in New York. She has, I had to ask how many children because they do a lot of fostering and I thought it was maybe 25, Um, but she tells me they have six, six legal children. Um, And you know what? Rachel, just say hello and tell us a little bit more about yourself because I'm doing a horrible job introducing you. Hello, I'm Rachel. I'm mom of uh, six boys. My husband actually is also in chaplaincy. Um, So he's a pastor and in chaplaincy. I am called in the home right now, uh, raising our kids. And um, big step yesterday, we sent our oldest off to college. We took him to college, so that was a big change. But yeah, we're just living life, thriving through life right now. And... I'm trying to decide if I want to go right into it or so I I feel like I should share this with someone listening to you to hear this. So, and Rachel and I talked about this already a little bit before we pressed record. 
But when she and I were 16 years old, and I mean, that we could talk about how that was for a long time. I think our notes were, I don't know, 20 notebook pages front and back. I think mine were like three. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe mine were 20 notebook pages front and back. Um, <laughs> I like to write. Um, my handwriting's big. But um, we were constant note writers. But we had gone to a church like getaway weekend or whatever. And I vividly remember that point in my life as being the point where I felt like God told me that I was going to be married to a pastor. And I remember after that, like telling you and you were like, oh, God told me that too. And I remember thinking like, Oh, okay. Well, that was probably for her. <laughs> Maybe it just like bounced off her and that's why I heard it too or something crazy like that. But, um, but over the years, I mean, that, that was when we were 16. You know, I didn't meet my husband who is a pastor until I was 30 years old. So over those 14 years, I remember going back to that, back to us standing at that youth convention and rem being reminded of that and then always thinking, well, maybe that was just for Rachel. <laughs> maybe I can date this guy who will never go into ministry because that was just for Rachel. <laughs> so anyway, but then what's interesting is she did marry a pastor way before I did. And, and she doesn't remember that distinct moment at that Valley Forge Convention Center. <laughs> so I love how it through life, you know, I love how God shows us things, um, even if we can't remember them sometimes the way it weaves through our lives. Yeah. So speaking of weaving through our lives, so God, God interrupted your regular daily life is normal for you a couple years ago when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Would you mind just kind of sharing a little bit of, of what that looked like? I will. Um, we, I had been through for a few years, I'd been through a lot of, a couple of biopsies, um, for different lumps and stuff like that. And so it wasn't abnormal for me. And I remember my mother going through it too. Um, and she had never had breast cancer. So for me, it was like, you know, there was some nervousness with it because it's a biopsy and all that, but I'd really just been through it the year before. And so, you know, you feel, um, I felt untouchable, like, well, this can't happen to me. That happens to other people. Right. So, um, we, went and had, I had the biopsy done and then I was waiting for the results and they were like, oh, but definitely by Wednesday, we'll give you a call. And Wednesday came and went and I didn't get a call. And um, we had had some other things going on in our lives at the time, which made me um, just a little bit more nervous than I would have normally been. Um, and uh, so Thursday came and went and Friday came and went. And then I put the calls in like everywhere Friday because I did not want to go the weekend without an answer. Because the longer I was going without an answer, the more I was like, what is happening in my life? You know, like it felt like something might, was ready to like spin out of control or something. Um, my husband and I went to a big formal actually on Friday night, which they call it um, this, they call it a prom for a work prom is actually what they called it, but um, it had, it just so happened to be oddly enough, it was at the time he was a chaplain at the hospital. So it happened to be with like all the surgeons that I would later meet in a different term, a different way. Um, but I didn't realize it at the time, but we'd had a great, just a great event um, together. And because of, you know, our history that we had met and gotten married out of college, um, we'd never gone to a formal together except for like our wedding and stuff like that. So it was really cool to be able to do that with him. And as I say now, like with my original breasts, <laughs> it was a fun night of dress. <laughs> it was their last night out. <laughs> out and like, not for nothing, but being, you know, like whatever age we are. Um, I remember specifically like 
hoisting them up that night and they hurt because of the biopsy that had been done but I remember really specifically like having my mother-in-law come in and actually tie the dress that I wore actually was like a corset back so she had to come in and like tie them <laughs> such a bizarre thing um bizarre memory but anyway so that was Friday night and then we had a great weekend just doing stuff and then that Monday was when I got the call okay. so it was like afternoon and, you know, I'm waiting for all the kids to come home. Afternoon in our house is a little bit crazy when school's in session because everybody kind of comes home, you know, staggering, but at the same time. So I was getting prepare, prepared for that and my phone rang and I saw it was a doctor. So I just grabbed it quick and my doctor, I picked him specifically. He was my gynecologist um, because he just had like a, a really good bedside manner and he's an older guy and he just felt like almost like a grandpa like I don't even know how to describe it and my dad a partial hysterectomy before with him and he had just been amazing with helping me through that and so you know he calls and it's like I, I got some news for you and I tell like I explain it like the world was spinning around me and I stood in my kitchen all alone mm. like that's the only way I know how to describe it like intentionally flat-footed grounding my feet on the ground because I knew that I knew that the way he approached the conversation that it was going to be a difficult one and then he, he so he told you over the phone or did he have you come in he didn't know he told me over okay the phone. okay you got all the information because a lot of surgeons or a lot of doctors call you in for it um he did not and I think you know might have been, maybe it was because the delay took so long um, but he said they had just repeatedly gone over it because they just did not want that for me so he had them mm. Thing resent and rechecked and all that stuff. Yeah. So it was just over the phone. And then like, you know, you hang up after a call like that. And, and you know, initially they were saying that, you know, it's you you could just be looking at a lumpectomy, which is just where they take a piece out. And so, you know, we'll have to see that with the surgeons and all that. But that's what he told me initially. So uh, that call ended. I remember grabbing my notebook and writing stuff down because I knew there was no way I was going to remember it. My husband that year had um, like eight months before my diagnosis had lost Jeremy, his best friend, and it, it was his cousin that he lost. So they had grown up together. They'd been in diapers together, the whole thing. We'd all like done marriage together and life together and stuff like that. So he had lost him um, suddenly. And so in that moment, you know, I was like, I, I can't tell him. I can't tell him. I can't. Like, I don't know what to do. And so immediately just, you know, started praying because God's who I go to first. And I was just like, what am I going to do? I don't, I don't know how to tell him. And we ended up, I ended up calling my sister-in-law who is on his side of the family and she just uh, knows me well. And um, she's a nurse herself, so I could talk over stuff with her. But um, I remember just sobbing on the phone. Like, I can't tell him, Amy. I don't know how to tell him because he just lost so much. Yeah. So that was my initial. Yeah first couple hours with it was that. And then timeline. So then how quickly were you seeing surgeons and how quickly were you finding out that a mastectomy might be what was in order? I was really fortunate because my husband was a chaplain at the hospital that we knew it would be the hospital we would pick to oversee everything. So I was very fortunate in my appointments being really quickly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, we ended up having to like, you know, we met with this I met with a breast surgeon, which was different from my gynecologist. He stepped out at that point. I mean, he checked in on me all the time and stuff, but he had stepped out of the medical part of it. So I had hooked up with a surgeon and I saw her right away. And um, it was probably like a, within a week that I saw her in um, 
when I met with her, she was so sweet. She had such a great bedside manner. And, um, you know, she'd known my husband very well and she'd known what he had just walked through and all that stuff. So, and she knew one of my cousins she was really close to. So, um, she had like a different, you know, uh, closeness to the family. And, um, she like moved forward to me on her little uh, chair on wheels. My husband was beside me and she moved forward and she touched my arm and she was like, I think, I think we need to do a mastectomy. Hmm. And that was like the first time I was like, oh gosh what is this? You know, what are we going to do? That was like another wave of it, you know, but she was so like amazingly sweet in it, you know, and she was like, we could do it. You know, we, I know some great surgeons, we could rebel Joe, you could be beautiful, you know, like it's not, um, this doesn't have to be the end of your story. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I think that if we go in there and we get it all out and take everything, you won't have to do this again. You will never do another biopsy, you know, you don't ever have to get scans and all that stuff. And, um, you know, like when you're in that moment, like the reality of not having to face that moment again mm-hmm. is huge, you know, like thinking that every three months they're going to scan me and I'm going to wait for more to come back because of me and the type of cancer that I had, that was what I was looking at. So, and it had grown so fast because they had biopsied where they had biopsied last year. They had done a biopsy just in case in that spot. And that's actually where they had found it, not where the actual lump was that they were looking at. Um, so I was really fortunate that they found it, but also too, we knew it was really aggressive because of how much it had spread already in an area that it wasn't in. Yeah. Wow. God took care of it. I mean, that's how I view it. That's how I see it. You know, yeah. um, he just had his hand in it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey there, how much is freedom worth to you? That's kind of an odd question, right? When I was in the midst of my struggle with disordered eating and body image, I would have paid anything I had to be free. Truth is, I spent a lot of my budget on things I thought could help me be free, like new diets, exercise gizmos, clothing, but none of those things really helped. I'm so grateful that God showed me the way out. And now I'm passionate about helping others find their way out too. I want them to know that Jesus already paid it all. They don't have to spend another cent to find the freedom they really desire. But truth is, it does cost me something to get this message out, compared to who can't spread the message of Jesus' offer of freedom without the help of women like you. Would you consider making a contribution? Check out Compared to Who's Patreon page at patreon.com slash compared to who. Then prayerfully consider giving $1 or $5 a month, whatever you can to help. Any amount you'd be willing to donate would be a huge blessing and will go directly towards covering the operating expenses of this ministry. Thank you for being a part of seeing other women set free from the chains of body image and comparison. May God bless your generosity. So I, I've done some research over the last couple of weeks because I knew I wanted to talk about this and I knew I wanted to talk about this with you. I felt like I distinctly put it on my heart to talk to you about this, but I have two other friends here in the Austin area that have walked through it similar things. One actually just had her reconstruction a couple months ago and the other, other walked through this, I think maybe two or three years ago, actually before you. So maybe longer than that, but, but anyway, so I was getting some Intel from them as to like, what should I ask her? What, what are the things to, to note? And, and one of my friends said something, which I thought was really interesting, but, but that when you have a body part removed, it's technically an amputation. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of talked to me about like, just feeling like the, the death of that part and like the grief and, you know, all of those things. Can you, can you 
kind of talk a little bit about that? What you experienced? That because I don't think I've ever talked about it ever. <laughs> not start crying. That's okay. Um, yeah, I remember. Um, I remember seeing a of a, a war veteran um, when I was in between my surgeries and at like an event or something, and. I remember just being like taken aback because, you know, when you're in the process and going through the process, there is so much grief that happens and so much that goes on internally as you're, you know, work, walking through everything. And at the time I was still broken. I was still hurting immensely, but everybody at that time, you know, like people just think if you're not talking about it, you're kind of through it or whatever, um, or don't talk about it, you know, cause they don't want to stir things up when, talk about it it's on your mind you know same thing with grief like talk about it if somebody's going through it they're they're thinking it um they need to talk about it but anyway I remember seeing this veteran and he didn't have a leg and there was so much love and support around that I think at the time like he was getting set with a new prosthetic and all that and so it was like a time of celebration but I remember being like so sad for him having lost his leg and like wondering what that would be like. And then it struck me like he walks around without a leg and he's getting a prosthetic and he's getting all the attention on that, you know, like from people, not that I didn't want attention, but, but man, I was so broken, you know, when I remember saying to my husband, like they amputated, like, why don't they call it an amputation? Why do they call it a mastectomy? And why do they call it reconstruction when it's an amputation? you know, and so I actually did address it with that with people um, on the other side. When I, you know, I've talked with women that are going through it and stuff, I make sure to call it that an amputation because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It really is losing a part of yourself, you yeah. know, women, um, the breasts are a big part of ourselves. So. And part of, and part of your beauty too. Yes. I mean, not that what, what we are physically is what makes us beautiful in God's eyes. Not at all. Like that's not what he says, but I think we feel like that is part of our beauty. It's part of our physical being. I remember when we were 16, you were always quite proud of your breasts. (laughs) I'm sure sure you're glad I shared that with everyone watching and listening. You can get me back at some point, (laughs) But, but, but I mean, but seriously, like, I feel like, I feel like that it's a hard loss to swallow for a woman. It's, it's part of our identity as females. It is. And, you know, because of the fact that I had had my first two children biologically and, um, you know, I birthed them out of my body and I nursed my kids. And so, you know, there's a part of you that doesn't like the fact that they're sagging and they're drooping and whatever, but there's a really, there is really just a part of me that like loved that. Like, I knew how to hoist them up on fancy dinners and stuff like that, you know, because they're part of you. They're like your girls, you know? And, um, yeah, it's just such a, um, that is really just a hard part of it. It's because you feel like you lose part of yourself. And I remember telling the plastic surgeon when I was in his office, like, um, I don't, cause he, you know, I just felt the need to say it. Like, like I don't want to look like a 20 year old girl. Mm-hmm. I don't. So please don't make me that. Mm-hmm. Please make me look like, you know, maybe you can hoist them up a little bit is what I told him, but I don't want to look like I'm in my twenties because I've earned these Mm -hmm. in a way. That's truly the way that I felt, you know? Yeah. It's part of the aging process. Yeah. And, and I had owned it. I, it was good. They were mine. Yeah. Well, I was just, as you you were talking about the, the veteran who had lost the leg and I was thinking of, I think his name is Sergeant 
Johnny Joey Jones or Joey Johnny Jones. I don't. He's just written a book, but I saw on Pinterest this meme that, and it was him. I think he had his prosthetic attached in the picture, but he said, people ask me how I can be so positive about my legs. And I asked them how they could be so negative about theirs. And Ooh. so like that hit me hard because my legs have always been my body image ugh, thing. But for those of us who haven't walked through breast cancer, who haven't walked through mastectomy, it's like, there's the there's the concept of, okay, well, you know, how can you complain about yours when you you still have yours kind of thing. But then you and I were talking and it's like, there's this whole weird angle of comparison guilt that happens in, in cancer. You want to just, can you fill that out? Like talk about what happened for you on that front. Sure. With my, um, with my process of it, you know, everybody's journey is different. Everybody's process is different. Um, but with my process of it, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I was kind of lucky, you know, maybe it's not the story that I wanted. Maybe it's not what I had, but you know, I was kind of lucky to be able to get the old ones off and the new ones on. Honestly, a lot of my friends at the time or a few years before this happened actually started getting implants on top of their own. And so, you know, and I even had somebody say to me, like, you're kind of lucky, you know, and I did not feel lucky. I felt broken, but you do compare yourself uh, to other people going through similar things or different things or, you know, like, hey, at least it was my rest and I could get new ones in, so I should be better already. You know, I should, I should be healed already. I should be moving forward already. You know, the um, breast cancer for me, crazy thing that people don't talk about is the fact that in your initial recovery from both of my surgeries that I had, um, the I had one to to have the mastectomy. And at that time I had um, expanders put in behind my muscle and my chest. And then um, it took four months for that to heal and be good so that I could get the um, implants in at that time. But the breast cancer really attacks your motherhood. And we had been new with having the, four, the fifth and sixth child in our home. Um, they had only come in like 11, 10 months before I was diagnosed. And so I was knee deep in, you know, six kids in the house doing dishes constantly, vacuuming because we have two dogs and messy children constantly, all those things. And that when you are recovering from a surgery like that, you can't do those things because your muscle is ripped open and torn apart and there's now a metal thing inside of it to expand it. And you just can't do those things. And I remember like comparing myself to women who didn't even have breast surgery done. Like I should be able to vacuum, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm in a vacuum and it like got to the point where I was doing stuff and my doctor was like, what are you doing? Stop it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was getting to the point where I'd have to like put heat on them at night because they, otherwise they would uh, spasm. My muscle would spasm all night and stuff like that. And um, it really was, you know, like a comparison, like I should be able to do this. I want to do this. I have to do this, you know, pushing myself in that aspect of it. Well, and then also survivor guilt is what you kind of mentioned. Yes, because we get, you know, like you get diagnosed and then um, at the time I had other friends that were, or acquaintances rather, but, you know, they become close friends during that process who didn't survive. And you're, you know, not well enough to go to their services and stuff like that. That is super hard and super guilty because why did I survive? How was I lucky? I don't actually, I don't like the word survivor because so many of my friends, people that I lost, they survived so much more than I did. Mm -hmm. um, 
way that I feel like it. Like, I don't like the word survivor because you don't, you're not in control of how bad you have it, what it's going to do to you. You're not in control of what doctors you pick. Um, because my husband was as linked up at the time with the hospital that he was, we had the greatest, the greatest doctors and the greatest surgeons and the greatest treatment team for me. And um, one of my f- acquaintances that turned into my friend very particularly remember she did, she did not. And I was so angry at the treatment that she had gotten. And then, so when she passed away and left her children behind, like there's no word to describe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't like, I don't like it all to, to use the term survivor with myself yeah. because she survived, you know, I mean, she's in heaven now, but she fought more than I did. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, and then inside all the fighting, just the fighting of the, the, I think the, the mental aspect of cancer, then there's this physical aspect of you just hurt, like you were saying with your, you know, trying to do housework, but, but I think it was you or someone else you talked to described that like when you're like, they basically rip open your chest to do this and that the pain is excruciating. Yes. And they did with the, you know, they take the breasts out and then they put the, um, the expander inside under your chest muscle. Um, and then you spend the next four months going, you know, weekly to get injections, the CCs into the expanders. And so they grow, but what, you know, I never realized before I went through the process was, um, as they grow, they're expanding the muscle Hmm. and that hurts like like hell. It hurts. That and you don't have a normal sense of yourself. Like I could not. I I'm a I'm a side sleeper, stomach sleeper. I could not sleep like that. Like I had to sleep flat on my back, propped up, for four months. You know that's that's hard to do. That's hard to take. And then you're not sleeping until you get used to sleeping like that. And so I wasn't sleeping for the first. Well, I didn't sleep really through the four months that that was going on either. Well, then let's let's talk about how people reacted as your breast slowly started to go from not there to, <laughs> to they were growing every week, right? Probably only something you could talk about, right? With somebody who <laughs> grew. Um, yeah, it's something I don't talk about, but yeah, I will absolutely go there with you for sure. Um, it is awkward. Because, um, you know, we were pastors at the time. I, I'm a licensed minister myself and we would go to these meetings, right? Or church or whatever. And I stayed, you know, like I did take the full like six weeks out of church just because of my breasts. I was, I was embarrassed, not embarrassed, I guess it's probably not the right word, but it just felt awkward. Mm-hmm. And so when I finally ended up going in my like eighth week or whatever, people look at your chest. They're curious, you know, and I actually, my mind went back to the first time it happened. My mind, I was standing in my church and it was a leader, you know, like somebody that I didn't, um, never was a chest looker, you know, because <laughs> you know, some people are, <laughs> are. This guy, this person was not, but I did notice, you know, like that's immediately where, and they, you know, like, and I was different, you know, like I had gone from being like a double C to being like nothing at first, probably by the time I went to church, I was like an A or something. I don't know, but it's so awkward. And, but my mind went back to this older woman that I'd walked through it with that had been in one of our churches. And I remember one day being in a meeting and like after she had first come back and um, I remember looking at her chest being like, you know, like, cause you're just curious. Um, And so I had to bring myself back to that and remind myself, it's just, you know, like people are just curious and people just want to know that I'm okay, really. 
And so, you know, how is somebody okay if they look the way they looked before? That's how you know they're okay. So it turned up going into that, but it was kind of complicated because you go, you know, like mine ended up, it went from weekly to ended up going um, monthly, but you go and you, they insert, they literally insert cc's of saline into a port that's in your breast so and you know they do each side so they're even and whatever they were able to do that with me but every time you know every month i was bigger (laughs) you know and i don't i did not at the time have a lot of weight otherwise so it was like obvious what was happening And I was so thankful that scarves, I think I was telling you, this is so thankful that scarves are popular. And I'm a big, like in the winter, I'm always freezing anyway. And because we live in upstate New York where the temperature gets down to zero and the snow falls for months at a time, I'm a big like hat and scarf kind of person anyway. And so I just ended up throwing the scarves on in the middle of summer because what else (laughs) do, right? But I bought some summer scarves because they sold them at the time, which I was thankful for. But, you know, because you get the looks and you get the stares and it's just not, yeah. it's not ever, you know, I don't, I've never been one that liked gawking and stuff like that anyway. So, but I think, I think you're right. People stare because they're curious, but then beyond that, like, we don't know what to say. You know, like I found like, you know, my husband's friends, um, you know, we're so, my husband and I are so close. We're good, you know, best friends anyway, but um, so our friends are all friends. Like we have couples that are all friends and um, I'm friends with those guys. Cause I'm, you know, good friend hopefully <laughs> but anyway like I remember that his guys checking in on me and um everybody just wants you to be okay mm-hmm. and you know like I did that's probably another part of it like I did find myself proclaiming I was okay before I was okay because I mm-hmm. saw that other people needed me to be okay in order for their world to keep spinning you know and especially our family um having lost Jeremy so so we were so new in our grief journey with it and stuff that I wanted to be okay so bad, you know? And so I wanted everybody to see that I was okay. And I wanted everybody to see that I believed that God had it, which I did, but I wasn't okay yet. Yeah. You know, but I did keep proclaiming it because I wanted everybody to see that and, and I wanted to be okay, you know? Yeah. Well, and I know there's so many different facets to being okay through a journey like this and so many different layers of things you have to process in grief. But can we talk about body image for a second? Like, let's, let's talk about what that was like. Now I was talking to my friend, Christine, sorry, I just gave your name away, Christine, (laughs) but I was talking to Christine and, you know, she was telling me kind of the same thing you experienced. Like she, you know, when she went to flat, just the looks she would get, especially when she was with her kids, people kind of staring awkwardly. I think she lost her hair as well. And I, you know, just so any, any cancer journey may take a woman through, through losing her hair completely. And, you know, all these different changes, like your body is losing a lot of weight or, I mean, all of the hard effects of chemo, if you have to walk through that, there's a lot of body image repercussions that come with cancer, which probably feels superficial to worry about when you're wrestling cancer, but yet I know enough to know that it's real. And so even if you write it off in your head, like, well, I shouldn't worry about that. <laughs> it's still, the concern is still there. So, so what are your, what are your thoughts there? Talk to me about the body image part of this. I start with a funny story. Okay. We, the, you know, we made the appointment for the, the surgeon, the plastic surgeon office. And um, when I was getting ready for it, I, it was like a spring, you know, summer, it was like the beginning of spring, summer, that type of season. And it was a hot day. And so I was like, 
my immediately, I don't even know why, but my mind went to watching 90210 when I was a little girl. And um, so I was like, oh, what would Kelly wear? She's going to the plastic surgeon, you know? And so I um, picked out like a cute summer dress, right? To go to the plastic surgeon because I wanted to look good. And so I show up at the plastic surgeon's office and my husband meets me there. You know, he's like, oh, you know, you look so pretty. And I was like, thanks. I just wanted to dress up for the occasion. You know, I was scared to death and I didn't know what I was meeting. You know, like I didn't know what was happening, but um, the reality that like, here we go. And we got called back into the office. <laughs> and the first thing that he had me do was you take off everything from the waist and so I didn't have anything on on the waist down. <laughs> um, the napkin that he gave me to wear, the you know, it wasn't like a real gown. Like when you go to the doctor's office, like even when I had the biopsy, I had like a real gown on, you know, and they have you like open it in the front instead of the back and whatever. So I was comfortable with that. This was like a paper thing. I'm not even kidding. And it went to like, first of all, yeah, it just didn't cover a lot at all. And um, so you have that on your top part, but honestly, my boobs were hanging out below because, you know, I was in my forties and that's what you put on. And I didn't have anything to wear on the bottom. So I was in my underwear in the plastic surgeon's office. <laughs> I got like mortified and then he tells me to go stand against the wall oh no <laughs> and they take the they take the plastic away now I'm like you know like prude I've only been naked in front of my sisters and my husband <laughs> <laughs> and, like stand it just in my underwear and it wasn't even cute underwear because it was not anticipating <laughs> getting my pictures taken I was gonna say did they take pictures yeah <laughs> And there's staff in the office at the time and talk about like, talk about being humiliated uh, and all those things, you know, and there I am in my granny underwear. There I am getting my picture taken. So the takeaway here is if you have to go to the plastic surgeon's office, be sure to wear pants and underwear you like. Or a skirt, like, you know, top if you want to look cute for your plastic surgeon. <laughs> but anyway, there so began the journey of humiliation, right? And yeah. um, things that... Uh, I had yet to deal with, but body image. So I will say that um, at the time your book um, had just been released compared to who, and there was a big part of me that, you know, I, um, when you're about to lose your breasts, you know, you, you, you just realize how much they're an integral part of your being, right. And how much you adore them or whatever, you know, and how much, you know, like through your adolescence, when you're growing in there, budding and they're growing it's so much a part of you and a part of who you are and I honestly would think back to like um times that you and I would have where we would sit by the creek just discussing boys and discussing our lives and um discussing you know like the changes that were going on with everything and I'd never really been one to struggle with my weight or that type of body image but obviously being close to you knew that that was so much of your journey part of your journey and part of what God was going to use to speak through you with that I, uh, I brought your book with me to every appointment. And part of me was like bringing that like 16 year old girl with me, the dreams of uh, who we wanted to be and who we were going to become and the dreams of being a wife and being a mother and being healthy. And, you know, like you don't even think about when you're a kid that when you're dreaming the part, the life that you have for yourself, you can dream it a healthy life, right? Nobody ever things they're going to deal with cancer that happens to somebody else and so like I remember literally in that plastic surgeon's office that first day like looking in my bag as I was getting dressed and I just had to giggle because I was like never in a million years would I have pictured myself to be posing for a camera 
breast hanging in the wind, you know, but uh, just the reality too of like that. It was part of who I was, part of who I am. There's such a part of you. And, um, you know, I'd had a chest since I was 12 years old and, and that's taken away, you know, the first surgery, you know, you luckily, I think they do it strategically, but they have you in like this crazy wrapping and this crazy binding and stuff like that because of all the trauma that your stuff had been through. And I, I had chosen to keep um, like the nipple part of my breast and stuff like that. So a lot of that was bandaged up and all that stuff. And um, when they, uh, you know, like when that comes off and like you literally, I literally brought myself back to like being like a 12 year old girl. That's what I saw in the mirror. Um, and I will say, which is something that I haven't spoken about. There's a beautiful part of it too. Like even in the, you know, in the grief and, and the pain and um, in the heartache I was in at the time, I remember just, just catching myself in the mirror um, downstairs. Cause I was trying really hard to keep up with my normal life. Right. And um, I think I'd been like five or six days past surgery and the kids hadn't been brought home yet. Um, Cause my mother-in-law had kept them, but they were about to be brought home. And so I came down to the living room area to make sure it was back and all that stuff for people to show up was I thinking right like five six days I was um but I yeah compared to who clean <laughs> compared to my mother-in-law that I've got a new book on that <laughs> so. I'm there, I'm there. <laughs> catching myself in the mirrors I was trying to do stuff and I was in so much pain and you know like I reminded myself of like my 12 year old self and you know part of you like it just makes yourself cry because you're like you never you never anticipated going through this journey right my mother at the time was already had already passed away um so there wasn't like that I didn't have any of that nurturing and caring going on during my time but I remember when I just catching myself I just remember being like you know there's a there is a part of you that mourns that that part of yourself, you know, that being 12 and them um, just beginning to grow and all that stuff. There's a part of me too that loved it because I wasn't my breasts. You know, like here I had been spending, because um, the time I was diagnosed in May and by the time my surgery came and went, like, you know, all we talked about for two and a half months was breasts. All I thought about was breasts. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking in the mirror too and being like, I'm more, I'm so much more than that. Look at me, like I'm upright. I'm doing what I need to do, you know, in this moment. I'm more than this. And so that was huge too, because, you know, as a woman, you I always compared myself. I always compared my breasts to other people and I always was proud of them, as you said. And I was, you know, like I have better breasts than my sisters. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which my sister, my one sister, hands down, she wanted, she, you know, no, it wasn't like me in that area. She was happy to um, be smaller up top, but but that being said, you know, like it just, you're, you're more than that. And that was a big moment for me too, was realizing that. And, um, it felt good. Like I thought, like, I really wonder if I could do this without doing the, without getting the implants. Like I remember thinking that in that moment, like, who are we, you know, yeah. are we tired of comparing yourself to others? It's time to break free, my friend. Check out comparedtohu.me online and you'll find a ton of great resources, blog posts, videos, and so much more to help you stop comparing and start living. And make sure you sign up for my exclusive email list while you're there. I send my email friends things I don't send anyone else. You can also find out more about my brand new book, The Burden of Better, How a Comparison-Free Life Leads to Joy, peace and rest. If you're tired of battling comparison, friend, I wrote this book just for you. Check it out. 
right after this episode, of course. Absolutely. When I feel like I've had similar conversations with people about losing their hair, mm. you know, because I mean, just even, I, I, I think I did a podcast on this, but like, you know, we get a bad haircut and it's like, Ugh, it's the end of the world. How long is it going to take this thing to <laughs> grow out? Like who can they get to fix it? You know, like the spiraling begins. It's like, oh no, I won't have any value until my hair gets back to being good again or whatever. And if the hair is gone, like, just like the breast being gone, like you are forced into, okay, I better find my identity yes. somewhere else. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure that would be jarring, of course, not something anyone wants to sign up for. Um, but, um, you know, maybe a silver lining blessing sort of thing. You know, I remember you were my friend that never had body image issues. <laughs> You know, like, well, and, and, you know, like, I feel like all of my friends were always tall and thin. I don't know. I just gravitated <laughs> towards, towards women that were built like you. And it was like, oh, it's not fair. Like, you didn't worry about when we went to pool parties. Like, you're like, oh, it's fun. It's great. And I'm like, how much clothing can I wear and still look appropriate at <laughs> a pool party? That kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, but cancer, cancer has a way of, of changing that. I know. <laughs> it steals it like you have no control which is what is the hardest thing of all because maybe i'm a control freak who knows <laughs> um, but you, know, <laughs> you can't control it you know and it's i knew in the moment that i chose it because um i wasn't gonna i didn't want to die from this like that was my bottom line i'm not gonna i'm not like you know like i remember asking the first surgeon that i saw am i could i die from this and she said if we don't take care of it not right away, but yes, you could. And so in that moment, I remember being like that cut and dry in the office, like take them. Yeah. Because like, I'm not going to, I'm not, if I can beat this, I'm not going to die from it. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Was one, of, one of my other friends that I talked to this week, she actually had reconstruction done from her stomach. And Ooh. so she, but she was, so she's like a mess. I mean, she's just coming out of reconstruction, like still kind of hurting and scarred, but she's like, but I've got like the flattest stomach I've had <laughs> since I was 20 and I've got these perky whole breasts. And so she's like, actually, I kind of look, I'm like, are you going to start like bathing suit modeling now? <laughs> she's like, I'm considering it. So uh, anyway, it's just, it's kind of funny, but she's like, it is the beauty from the ashes. Of, of sorts, you know, that, that that reconstruction option is there and, you know, they were able to rebuild her. Um, and even though it was a hard, hard thing to go through, there there is the, the beauty on that side of it. But she also told me at the same time that a lot of women who had implants decided that this was a good time for them to empathize with what she was going through. <laughs> and, and she said it was somewhat frustrating to have women be like, yeah, when I had my implant surgery, it was da 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 da. So did you have that happen at all? I really did not so much. Um, you know, I had some people tell me I was lucky. <laughs> I was like, mm, I don't know about that. Um, because I could get implants or whatever and the insurance would cover it. That's a... <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Not so I didn't really have too much of that. I'd had some friends who had had some done and, you know, earlier in life and stuff like, I think we were like 35, a bunch of my friends just went out and did it, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, different, but, 
what they need to do, what they need to do, no judgment, right? And yeah, so no, I didn't really have too much of that. I'm sure that the people that came up to her or, or brought that up were just trying to empathize, right? Yes. So, no. so how, do, how do we empathize? I mean, I, you know, I feel like I would be the one to, like, I don't, and I told this to Megan the other day, I'm like, I don't know what to say. Like, what do we say? Like, aside from like, I'm praying for you, I'm supporting you, but like, have no idea how to enter into that journey with someone. Like what, what would have been supportive for you? What would have been helpful for you to hear? You know, that there's so many um, different things that go along with it, right? Everybody's walking their own journey. And even someone that had like the same kind of breast cancer I had, and, you know, we all go through our own journeys um, differently. But one of the things I think is that um, I personally, like I was saying, did not, I wasn't better before I was telling people I was better. And everybody wants you to be better when you have cancer because it's so awful. And so many people have stories of, you know, like I had, I was amazed after we had, I had shared in church what I was dealing with after I got off the stage. So many people came up to me that I knew, people I felt like I knew so well that had walked through uh, breast cancer with their mom or cancer with their spouse. And I remember one guy in particular, never, I never had anticipated his first wife had died from cancer, breast cancer, never in a million years had anticipated that. Um, but he began to share that journey with me, you know, which I'd known the guy for like five years. He'd never once mentioned it. And so different things like that. So like me, myself, I felt the need to be better. I felt the need to lead everybody. Like I'm going to be successful in this. I'm going to be the testimony on the other side. Right. And so um, I projected that so much that I was better and I wasn't better. And, you know, you have, when you first get diagnosed, if you're fortunate, like I was, so many people stand with you and so many people rally behind you. And we had people all over the world sending us messages and flowers and fruit baskets, you know, the whole nine yards. And we felt so loved and so cared for. And, you know, you feel that power behind you. And then, you know, like I said, my surgery was in the end of July. So like by the end of September, like all that, it dies down. It, it dies away. People have lives. People want to see that you're okay and they want to get on with their life. And so, you know, I felt the need to kind of project my okayness for that too. But just the reality that like I was not okay. And, you know, there were a few friends during that time that did reach out to me. And oddly enough, a lot of them were, you know, my husband and I are very, we're pastors and we've been pastors for 20 plus years. And so we, a lot of our community are, you know, people that we are close with is that. And so honestly, like the people who checked on me the most in that time was my siblings, you know, which they were right there. But these, my husband's friends that checked in on me, check in to make sure I was okay, because I've been pastors and who they were, they'd walked through it with other people and had the wisdom to know that I was not okay. And so I've had like random conversations with, oddly enough, it was men that I was having the conversations with, but telling them like, my soul's not okay. Like, I don't know what to do. Um, and then I would just try to bury it again and go on and be okay for everybody. And I think that delayed my healing process so much. Mm -hmm. And so now when I walk through anything with friends, I, I hope they will be like, you know, she, she sat with me because in this day and age, we're so, you know, technology savvy and we're so busy and such a great thing to be as busy because it means we're successful and all those things. But you know, like, um, if anybody sat with me long enough, they knew I wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's me and that's my personality and stuff too. But 
just to be there, you know, and I, we didn't have anybody, nobody left, nobody went away. Um, but you go through it for months and months and months and, um, just being the friend that doesn't try to put the pretty bow on it and doesn't try to wrap it up for you, but allows you just to walk in it, who you are, you know, allows you to be broken and still, um, shows up for coffee or still brings coffee to your house to sit with you. You know, um, it's people yeah. like that, that really led to my healing eventually. Uh, cause it's not something that goes away no matter how much they say it's the next day. It doesn't go away. It's, you know, like I'm three years out and still dealing with it to some degree, you know? it's a real life change. Yeah, that's good. Because it, it seems like this isn't the time for your spiritual pep talk. Like, come on, God brought you through this. You just need to be grateful and start praising him and thanking him and just, you know, forget about all that other stuff. And you just, you know, don't let the devil steal your joy. It seems like it's not, go ahead. No, no, you're saying it. You're right on. It's so true. It's so true. And there are moments, I mean, there are beautiful moments like in worship and in prayer and stuff like that, where, man, God was bringing me, you know, like I had moments of triumph and, um, you know, feeling like we're defeating it, we're defeating it, you know. Um, but I remember when I was getting ready for my second surgery, because my husband knows me so well, he looked at me and he was like, we will, you will not tell people that you're better right after. <laughs> like, we can't go through this again. We need help. You know, we can't pretend that it's going to be okay until you're okay. And so that was huge for me too, just to have that permission to, to grieve and to be sad and to walk through what I needed to walk through in the time I needed to get through it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just remembering something about you. You don't like to ask for help. I don't like it at all. I kind of forgotten that about you, but as you're talking, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Rachel, I mean, not that I ever like to ask for help. I feel like I've grown in that. Well, my husband is not afraid. Like he'll ask anyone for anything. He's just like, Can no, you it favor? Oh, it's so, I'm like, that's so embarrassing. Don't ask them that. <laughs> like, oh seriously, God. you're going to bother them. Don't bother. Don't ask them if, oh my word. <laughs> like we don't do that. Don't, is that a Pennsylvania thing? <laughs> is that like a, is that like a Pennsylvanians don't need some, don't need help or what is that? I don't know. The strong woman here is roar. We don't need help. <laughs> so true. But I have a feeling walking through cancer, you need help. So did you find yourself in the position where you had to ask for it or just enough people were volunteering or how would you navigate? How would you advise someone navigating that? Because my husband loves to have help. Uh, he was really quick to realize like he couldn't get, you know, from the get go, he couldn't get all the grocery shopping done. He couldn't get all the dishwasher loaded. He couldn't get the kids bathed and in bed on time and all those things. You know, we always joked about, he brought in six people, <laughs> six different volunteers to do your to do job. <laughs> so every once in a while, you know, when he's had a hard day somewhere, I like to remind him like, mm, but did you have, it was this job that you were doing, you know, um, but yeah, he was good. He was quick to ask for help with the house and all that stuff. Thank God. Cause I, I never would ask for it. We all know that. And uh, so, but it was taken care of, you know, initially it was um, like I was saying, like in the fall, it started to wear off because I was projecting I'm okay. I'm okay. And I think that's what scared him was looking at the second surgery. He knew, you know, cause they open everything back up and they go back in and it's all that healing all over again. And so he knew it was going to take time. So he Luckily, you know, like fortunately he had the wherewithal to like get the physical help that we needed. It took me months and I'm, you know, like almost ashamed to say it. Like it, it took me until probably like March to realize like I was not okay. Emotionally, I was not okay. We had, 
walked through so much and then the breast cancer and with having two new little guys that needed so much parenting and stuff at the time. And we were still, honestly, we were still like in the battle there where in the foster care journey where they were scheduled to go back and not going back and scheduled to go back and not going back. So it was a lot of upheaval in our home as well. And so throw that all together. By the time March hit, I was not okay. I mean, that was literally like, and I'll say, I say it now that that like January through March is the darkest time of my life ever because I would get done what I needed to get done. And, you know, I would get the dishes finally clean. I would see the bottom of my sink by 11 o'clock at night and I'd crawl up into bed, sometimes cry myself to sleep and wake up at six and do it again, you know, because that's what needed to be done physically for our house to function. But I was not okay. I was losing myself in the process and um, was really breaking down. Um, I actually had gone to a, a doctor's appointment that had nothing to do with any of that. It was my gast- gastrologist or whatever that I was seeing. And she's like my age and has kids and all that stuff. And so she's like, how are you doing? And she asked me that and I, I just broke. Like I just, it was like crying uncontrollably because she, she was the first person to ask me that, believe it or not, mm-hmm. in months, you know, and I don't know, like why but when she asked me and you know it's a doctor you don't feel like you have to you need to be that strong person for a doctor because they're supposed to fix you right (laughs) and so um, for whatever reason I just felt safe with her and I was like I'm not okay and so she ended up going through and making appointments for me because my doctors are all linked together and she actually stepped in and made appointments for me that um, I had to go to to check in with different doctors and stuff like that which was it was a life-saving. It turned into an empowering thing for me because I was able to get on, go forward and grow and move forward from that point. So that was a big turning point for me. And I literally, like, she just, she let me sit in her office and she was a gastrologist, you know, she, she follows my GI tract, but she let me sit in her office and cry for about 45 minutes. Yeah. And that was life-giving to me, you know, because I, yeah. wow. I was just... And she lined up everything that I needed to move forward and get help. And, and it was after that, you know, that I admitted to my husband, because my husband was working insane hours at the time, because he was a pastor and a chaplain. And, um, you know, it's nothing for him to work 60, 80 hours a week, you know, and I just kept putting up the front, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I can do this because I'm, you know. I'm super Rachel. <laughs> super Rachel. That's right. I didn't introduce you that way, but perhaps I should have. <laughs> Super Rachel. Super Rachel failed. <laughs> Super Rachel got hit with kryptonite. Well, as we kind of wrap things up, what's one piece of encouragement you would give to any woman walking through this? Rely on God and rely on others. To rely on yourself, to let it, let it bring you to a point of breaking where you're just dependent on him and um, even on other people around you, you know, like it, it is a hard journey. Um, and there's a lot of scary things when you're first diagnosed and even after, but just the reality of let, let, let yourself be who you're meant to be and who you're becoming to be out of it. Take the time that you need to, to grow and to heal and to appreciate those around you during it. Cause there's nothing like cancer to make you appreciate your children, mm-hmm. appreciate your husband appreciate your life, appreciate having breath in the morning to wake up, you know, and let those things really be what they are and let yourself stop in that and sit in that for a while. You're so much stronger than you think, you know. Thanks. Thanks for that. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for just being willing to talk about all this and share your story. And like, I get the impression you're kind of helping other women walk through this now. I I feel like that's what 
a lot of my friends that have walked through this, that's like what God turns their journey into one that where they're helping others. Is that right? And like, luckily I was wise enough to read something on in my early on in my journey. That was like two years. Like it usually takes two years. Cause I was so frustrated with myself being, especially being in ministry and stuff that I couldn't talk about it right away. But yeah, is and when I hit my two year mark, I was like, okay, who you bringing? And God just started trickling people here and there, you know, in and we're going to go through something, man, we might as well walk through somebody else and share it with them. Make Amen. it worth it. Yeah. God doesn't waste it. God doesn't waste doesn't. cancer. He doesn't waste mm-hmm. thinking your legs are fat either. <laughs> so <laughs> from personal experience, <laughs> the number of women that write me saying, I thought my legs were fat too. is amazing. <laughs> so we all have our stories, right? Well, thank you so much for, for being on the show today and, and for sharing. And thank you for watching or listening. My ask for you today is that if you know a woman that has walked through this, would you share this with her? Because even if it didn't mean a whole lot to you, it may mean something tremendous to a woman that's actually walked this journey. So would you, would you consider sharing this episode? That would be my ask for you today. And as always, I thank you for watching or listening. And I hope that something in today's episode has helped you stop comparing and start living. That's all for today. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Hey friend, would you check out the date on that episode you just listened to? Yeah, it's been a minute. Listening to old podcasts is almost like reading my diary from several years ago. In some cases, it's even a little embarrassing. So instead of listening straight through season by season, can I encourage you to skip ahead? I release brand new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. And if you're not sure where to start, you can go to improvebodyimage.com, find the start here button, and I've got several episodes listed and categorized so you can find the topics that are of most interest to you. Your time is valuable, so skip straight to the good stuff. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for letting me be a part of your body image and food freedom journey. Hello, hello, Quinice Petway here, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. Are you someone who loves to take a deep dive into God's word, one verse at a time to explore his will for your life and desire to draw closer to him? If that sounds like you, I'd love to invite you to head over to lifeaudio.com and search your daily Bible verse to tune in and subscribe for daily inspiration, life application, and spiritual transformation through the in-depth exploration of God's Word.